0: The Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Allison Jones received her B.A. in Environmental Studies at the University of California at Santa Cruz under the guidance of her mentor and advisor, Michael Soule. She then completed her M.S. in conservation biology at the University of Nevada, Reno, in 1996. Her master's study analyzed the effects of cattle grazing on small mammal communities in the Great Basin. In 2014, Allison ascended to executive director of Wild Utah Project until she moved on from the organization in January of 2020. Allison currently serves as principal of Allison L. Jones, LLC, where she specializes in large landscape scale conservation analysis and analysis of state and federal wildlife and habitat management plans and revisions. She currently works on a contract basis to university researchers, independent scientists, government agencies, and conservation NGOs. I started today by asking Allison to get us caught up on all the Wild Utah Project projects.
1: Wild Utah Project has a lot of really cool uh, studies and projects going on. Um, But maybe the one that leaps to mind right away is our Wasatch Wildlife Watch. Uh, We currently are in about to launch the, the third year of this study, which takes place in the central Wasatch Mountains, covering about seven canyons, mostly on the front side of the Wasatch Range above Salt Lake City. And it's a trail camera study And we have, um, you know, a hundred and something trail cameras. Um, I think it's 120 this year or something like that. And we have uh, volunteers, one for each camera, who uh, are honchoing those cameras and putting them in their assigned spots uh, to gather as much information as we can on the, the medium to large mammals, both ungulates and all all mammals, predators um, that are moving through the Wasatch Range. And each camera is moved uh, twice during the summer. So there's three locations for each camera. So you can do the math. It's a lot of cameras taking a lot of um, motion-triggered photos over the field season, which runs from, you know, May or June, depending on when the folks can get to their assigned sites, Uh, to the mid to late August. And we have millions of images that are being um, processed and sorted. And this is feeding into actually um, a PhD uh, study for Austin Green at the University of Utah Conservation and Ecology Lab. And uh, basically what the study is aiming to do is to get the data that the that the planners and the land managers and wildlife managers needed yesterday in terms of the interaction of these um, species with the wild urban interface, where they're moving, the pinch points, important movement corridors, a little bit of relative abundances, and importantly, which features of the human landscape um, are affecting the, the distribution and abundance of these animals. For example, what is it about being closer to the wild urban interface when species X, Y, or Z is suddenly not detected by our cameras? Is it human um, recreation? Is it the trails? Is it roads? Is it buildings or density of buildings, et cetera? All these layers are laid over the, the occupancy model, basically, that Austin Green is running. And all this data, the the land managers, the Forest Service, Division of Wildlife Resources, the Cottonwood Canyon Transportation EIS process, all this data and the analyses resulting from this data are being funneled to these um, folks, decision makers, planners, and and agency people uh, to make important decisions about human development and, importantly, protection of habitat.
0: Can you talk about anything that um like an example that's come of this data that if it hadn't existed, um things might have gone the other way in terms of development decisions or anything else?
1: Well, we're we're not quite there yet because the study's not quite done. Um the the initial analyses are being passed on, you know, to the, the, the planners and the folks that need the data and it will be used soon. Um and I mentioned the Little Cottonwood Canyon um, travel plan environmental impact statement. This is a really hot issue in the central Wasatch right now. Um, how are they going to address the uh, the fact that we're loving these canyons to death, you know, here in the Wasatch? Yeah. All the recreation that's up there, to ski areas up there, there's talk of linking ski areas, you know, over to other canyons. Um, parking issues, traffic issues. Um, what are the, the solutions that will be put into place? Will it be, you know, tunnels? Will it be um, widening roads? Will it be gondolas? Um, will things be closed? Things like that. So, um, stay tuned. The data will be super important in the next year for for this particular decision process
0: in particular as I've talked to more people that are doing this kind of work, you all kind of hang out in the same places. How is this really having a direct effect on uh, policy in general?
1: There's plenty of examples throughout the, the West where um, the agencies are really, um, and I mean the land and wildlife state and federal um, management agencies, they're, they're really getting into this um, advanced technology. Right, and using it to make um, better you know, decisions for the, the land and, and habitat for wildlife, and so the the motion-triggered trail cameras, um, that's just you know one example. Um, drones are coming into fashion. That's an amazing tool to gather so much data, than more than we could have done on the ground in in the past, for example. Um, and the, the the trackers that they're putting on on animals, um, tiny little you know pit tags on around the legs of of birds that only you know weigh a few grams and things like that. And uh, I think there's there's plenty of, of examples where you know some agencies are embracing um, this technology to to make better decisions on the, the ground. Um, and I think it, it also depends kind of which species and which issues you're talking about. Um, I think that there's certain you know, species and habitats that are uh, easy, easier for the agencies to make kind of the, the right um, planning or management or conservation decision on. Um, things like uh, amphibians, um, you know, beavers, fish and their habitat. When it comes to, you know, data that might be showing that, you know, wolves are moving through a certain area and need, you know, really important, you know, protections to let them travel, then that's where the, you know, the policy might come more into play.
0: You know, when you guys come in with this level of data and irrefutable photographic evidence and tracker data and drone stuff and everything else, it just makes it a lot harder than... Uh, for people in, on the agency side who might politically not want to do or make a decision in a certain direction, uh, in the direction of wildlife and protecting that or restoration, um, I mean, it just makes it really, really hard for them, doesn't it?
1: hmm Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, especially with, again, some of those super rare and controversial species if a trail camera picks at the you know wolf or a, a lynx where it was assumed they... Don't live anymore, you know. The agencies, you know, have to kind of sit up and take notice, um, you know, especially if it's a federally uh, protected species under the Endangered Species Act. You know, you can't refute um, a positive ID from a trail camera, right? Right. <laughs> but Wild Utah Project has a long history of of putting um, citizen citizen scientists to work on on many of our projects, and it just enables us to collect you know, 10, 20, 50 times, you know, more data than we would be able to do just with our, you know, staff and a technician or two or an intern or two. It's remarkable. The Wasatch Wildlife Watch trail camera study would absolutely not be possible without our you know, roughly 100 volunteers more actually working on that project.
0: What's it like to organize an operation like that or a set, or I, I imagine Wild Utah has got a whole bunch of overlapping and different things going on what give us a sense of oh, what yeah. it's like to organize all of that
1: it can get a little crazy um we have um six separate um you know, projects right now at wild utah project that uh use citizen science volunteers and so basically we you know divide and, and conquer well i was um on staff at wild utah project which was up until just um this past January, um, whether I was the conservation biologist or in my last six years the director, I was in charge of a, a couple of the citizen science projects as well. Um we also have two um conservation biologists or ecologists on staff. So we 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 did eat up. So everyone's in charge of, you know, basically two um well, or three <laughs> projects. Um Our summer interns can be helpful in in helping to manage our um, communication directors, the one that's in charge of communications with all these volunteers. So we're kind of a well-oiled machine, but you've got to be on top of your game. I mean, we had probably, you know, I want to say between 250 and 300 volunteers last year in one way, shape, or form working on something. Yeah, it was pretty crazy.
0: (laughs) So... In terms of like big plans um, what does all this what does all this play into on a on a on a three thousand foot view of wild Utah project in terms of like restoration rewilding um, plans that you have proactively not to just I know you guys don't just sit and fight everything although we need groups and people to do that to to stay alert to things that are um, needing to be dealt with immediately but how does all of this feed into a bigger larger plan for um you know, half Utah, kind of like the Half Earth movement.
1: Yeah, in a in a couple ways, and, and I think one example I'd like to really touch on is um, Wild Utah Project's uh, stream and riparian uh, restoration program. Um, basically, you know, we've we've done kind of the um, wildland network designs, you know, for Utah and um, for the the heart of the West region in the northeast corner of the state. And for the Colorado uh, Plateau, and so we've, you know, we've identified, you know, the, the core areas. But when it comes to the the linkages or corridors between core areas, the riparian linkages are one of the most critical. And here's some low-hanging fruit in our state and throughout the West, because um, so many of our riparian corridors are degraded, as you know for lots of reasons. One of the best uh, restoration tools at our disposal is um, beaver reintroduction or recolonization, if you can foster or encourage natural recolonization of beaver to help repair those degraded streams and raise that water table, but also the use of the the human-made beaver dams, the beaver dam analogs. And so, Wild Utah Project is in year five, four or five of um, a statewide effort to work with many um, partners and fellow scientists and state wildlife and land management agencies to um, tackle many of our watersheds and streams within those watersheds that are, again, the low-hanging fruit. Um, that we know are degraded and that we can you know, bring the resources together to identify you know, where we need to use what tools, you know, where it makes sense to um, try to encourage beaver recovery. We've got the, a top-notch um, science team up at Utah State University, led by Joe Wheaton and his um, beaver uh, recovery assessment tool. It's a it's a really cool a modeling exercise they did that shows all the perennial streams in Utah and basically which ones need beaver recovery the, the most based on their condition. And then um, while well, Utah Project will come in and do the, the pre-restoration, you know, whether we're talking about actual beavers or the beaver dam analogs, we'll do the pre-restoration. Um, stream and riparian uh, functional assessment using the Rapid Stream Riparian Assessment Protocol, and we'll get the baseline data. Then the restoration effort, for example, you know the Beaver Dam analogs, will come in, and Wild Utah Project will bring the citizen science volunteers to, to build those, um, you know, with our various partners. Uh, Division of Wildlife Resources is a big partner for us on doing these um bdas and then we'll wait you know a couple few years to see um how the restoration action is is doing in terms of recovering the stream and riparian area and then we'll come in again with the rsra protocol again with our volunteers who've been trained in the protocol and we'll get the post-restoration data so it's a proof of concept to show that um whether it's the real thing beavers or these analogs um that uh it's working and this is just a great um program a great bang for your buck in terms of restoration energy and dollars and uh, we had a lot of work to do in utah but we're really excited that utah is on board um the beaver bandwagon the bda bandwagon and it's it's really exciting mm-hmm.
0: You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of Wildlands Protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. For the lay people, and this was the first question I ever had when I saw a human-made beaver dam. And I hang out with conservation biologists, so I don't feel embarrassed to ask this. When do you decide to use a human beaver over a beaver beaver?
1: Not all ranchers, irrigators, county commissioners, you know, people down in Garfield County, for example. They've not all come to be beaver lovers. Um, and so while the Division of Wildlife Resources, I think, would love to follow Joe Wheaton's brat model and just plunk beavers down wherever um, Joe Wheaton's model, you know, shows red, like really degraded and needing beavers, you know, they have to kind of cool their jets and just make sure that people up and downstream and, you know, irrigators and farmers and ranchers uh, and the local community are, are cool with that. and. Um, it's not always the case, and when you can kind of get the the same um, effects, you know, and the restorative values and functions with the fake beaver dam, you just go ahead and do those. They're cheap. They're fun to build. You bring in the volunteers, and the neat thing is, if there happens to be beaver anywhere in that watershed upstream or down they'll eventually, you know, find your beaver dam analogs and maybe settle in, maybe, you know, fix them, <laughs> redo them. They'll probably thinking, what were these humans thinking? Do them right, and they'll maintain them. And hopefully by the time the beaver find them and and, and move in, by that time the, the, the community and the 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 ranchers and the, the reservoir owners and realize the, the good effects that these these structures are having on the the, the watershed and that um, they're not, quote unquote, stealing water from downstream users. You can basically see with your own eyes that the water trickling in more or less equals the water trickling out. And they can see the effects of that heightened, uh, that raised water table, creating more lush, you know, grasses and forbs for um, grazing cows for example the green belt extends you know wider um, away from the stream channel because of the raised water table and uh, the water is delivered downstream to the reservoirs longer because these big beaver dams the ponds that we create hold the water along all these great benefits hopefully by the time you know the beavers move in and start maintaining them then everyone's you know cool with that because they we want to get to the point where everyone wants these ponds and it's not just one or two to do restoration, right? You really kind of need to sew up that, that Creek, so to speak. Um, hopefully everyone wants those ponds to, to stick around. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. I, it's kind of hilarious and somewhat with a dash of sadness that they're cool with you building dams and not worried about you stealing water but they think beavers somehow have these little, I mean, I just can't imagine what goes on in people's heads sometimes. (laughs) But whatever it takes, right? And and it seems to be working. Yeah,
1: yeah. here in Utah, it's a lot of little baby steps, you know, a lot of baby steps and just kind of, you know, working with uh, the different partners and players best you can. And sometimes just sort of like, keeping your head down, like, Hey, we're doing, we're doing good things for the land and wildlife here. Like keep your head down and keep doing it.
0: (laughs) Well, what do you, so you're a perfect person to ask because you've had enough time on the ground um, in a particular area to probably answer this really well, which is you talk about baby steps. Is it going to have, has it had an effect on people that you've known for a long time landowners that you've known for a long time or known of, is it, does it have a cumulative effect?
1: I I think so. Again, you know, I'm, I'm mostly seeing this from like the agency standpoint, you know, the division of wildlife resources. You know,
0: well them two years
1: ago didn't even have, yeah. Oh yeah. They didn't have a beaver conservation and management plan. And now they, they do. Um, but you know, Utah, I think there's a pretty, good job, you know, our fourth grade curriculum is is good in, in, you know, ecology and environment, field trips and, you know, looking at things holistically and I I can only hope, you know, that the tide's sort of, you know, turning a little bit on, you know, not only the beaver issue, but um, others, you know, climate change, believe it or not, is still a matter of some um, debate here, especially with our, oddly, our, our legislature you know, the value of, just, you know, public lands and, and open space in our state of Utah, that's not always celebrated as it should be. But, you know, that tide's turning as well because our, you know, the billion-dollar recreation economy in, in the West, um, Utah is just smack in the middle of that. And, and people are starting to wake up to the fact that we've got to not nibble away at or you know um, sell off or give to the states or any crazy idea like that we need to continue to preserve and carefully manage you know these public lands um, because they're so critical to Utah's tourism and recreation economy and if we can do that you know the conservation groups and the Rewilding Institute and Wildlands Network and the, the conservation organizations thinking really big can you know be like Yes, and you know we have to you know connect them to again, kind of baby steps, keep your head down,
0: <laughs> yeah, well, in so many ways yeah. i 've always viewed Utah as one of the as the the front lines on public lands fights in so many ways, and it 's always in the center mm-hmm. of something and uh, one of the things that you don't get to see on social media updates or newspaper headlines is the feedback from people like you who work so hard and have for so many years, uh, the, the reaction to um, Lance, you were so diplomatic there but lands just being completely ripped freshly put into protection and then ripped right back out of our hands or wildlife's hands really <laughs> uh i mean you could uh, you could have gone a little harder on that if you wanted to but i will <laughs> and and yeah go for what's it. it like because you, so you got that big huge uh amount of money that's spent the outdoor recreation is no joke in utah i mean i don't know if you've ever seen a comparison study of other states but you have to be in the in the top. 5 or 10 uh in western states oh, in terms of money that you guys that 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 your wild places draw so um but but from the headlines and everything it looked like uh you were just another helpless state in Um, federal policy just switching uh, idea on on Bureau of Land Management land and all that their ideology is just completely different from anything that's ever come before it and what does a strong state like yours feel like when you live there what was the backlash like or what is it ever like when people really make big threats toward big chunks of your public lands there
1: oh yeah and I I think that the the groups that are suing to you know reenact um, the original boundaries of the Grand Staircase and Bears Ears National Monuments, such as Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance and uh, Utah chapter of the Sierra Club, um, et cetera. I think they're they're confident that the law is on their side, that what was done was illegal, and it might need to um, you know wait for. A hopeful new administration um, that will come in next year, with with any luck. And so it seems to to me. And again, I'm not on the front line of of that fight, nor is Wild Utah Project. But it seems to me that the environmental attorneys overseeing that are are pretty confident. So they're just letting that work its way through, and they're you know working on the other um, more immediate you know brush fires you know southern Utah wilderness alliance is you know activated and deployed to um, fight for every unit of the um the red rock wilderness proposal that's in congress and when you know new oil and gas drilling is going to eat away at the boundaries of one of those units SUA is there you know fighting that so i I think the really big picture Things like you're, you're talking about um, with those two um, monuments, that's sort of being just, it's going, it's churning through the legal process. Um, yeah. Other groups are working on, you know, some other really big issues regarding the, oh, those sage conservation plans that have, have been just, a you know, a, a ping-pong ball. And that's at the national level across the, world, the range of the sage that's been a real mess, you know b l m grazing management um yeah there's there's so many big issues that our partner organizations are are working yeah. now right now, and it's certainly not not just Utah.
0: One thing I always worry about is scientists' mental health in a time when <laughs> When uh, you guys aren't appreciated like you have ever been in the past. And that's going to go away. We'll have another administration. Hopefully, um, we'll go back to listening to scientists again. But on a big level, on the big picture, it just feels like everybody's gotten thrown under the bus. If you have any kind of a degree or experience or formerly were the person to ask about conservation issues, and now uh, you're being passed up for a politician or somebody, a stakeholder with an obvious uh, beef against conservation and everything. How has that been for, for you guys in terms of, is it that way on the ground? Is it that bad on the ground? Or are there people in agencies that are just kind of keeping their heads down, agreeing with you, but trying to keep their jobs too?
1: Yes. And I, I very much, um, you know, I can't Really speaks from the perspective of the, the career, you know, professional agency, you know, biologists and ecologists right now. And I feel for them. They are in a tough spot, but you kind of hit the nail on the head here in Utah with some of these. I mean, there are some great scientists and biologists in these um, federal agencies. And they, it does feel like they're kind of, you know, <laughs> keeping their head down and they're reaching out actually. Um, more than before to groups like Wild Utah Project um, who can, you know, uh, bring resources. Um, we can bring an army of citizen scientists. These agencies are having their budgets slashed, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service field office. When someone um, quits or leaves, there's, there's never money to rehire. Everyone's doing two or three people's jobs. It's, it's It's awful. And so we are I'm finding that these, you know, career professionals here in Utah are reaching out for collaborative partnerships more than before. And everyone's kind of keeping their head down. Um, So it's, it's a really tough time for those agency scientists right now. I really do feel for them.
0: That's interesting. I wonder if something will happen in the future. Uh, that we'll be able to get a little bit of space and perspective um, looking back at this and find that they pushed people who were formerly more staunchly very conservative in the agency and wanted to protect their jobs and everything into the arms of the conservation (laughs) movement.
1: Yeah, I hope, I hope so. But in the meantime, the, you know, the the frontline defense environmental groups have been, you know, assuming the agency's right and left as they they should when the agency abandons sound policy, breaks the law, or throws their own, you know, rules and regulations out the window. We've, you know, unfortunately been seeing all of that. Um, So yeah, I mean, groups like us that are left in the middle, you know, are are looking for opportunities for partnering despite um, all that. (laughs) So what's next for you? Well, um, it's just been a few months, and I'm I'm still involved in Wild Utah Project. They're calling me the, the um, Emeritus Extraordinaire, um, so I'm on the you know, website, and you can still reach me at my wildutahproject.org email. Um, there's three or four um, you know manuscripts, publications from various projects I'm wrapping up and submitting right now. Um, we have a big long-term um, study at the um, at the Kennicott um, Copper uh, Mine actually. That's looking at the long-term interaction between these um, sagebrush treatments and the return of livestock grazing. So I'm still kind of honchoing that project. That'll that's a 20-year project. Will be a lot of publications. Last month I spent two or three weeks intensely up at our legislature. Um, First, fighting and then working um, to fix a, a pretty bad wildlife bill. Um, the original bill was going to basically call on the Division of Wildlife to to just put bluntly kill a lot more predators in the uh, deer hunting units that are below objective. So um, we we worked with. Um, Scientists at USU and carnivore ecologists and specific legislators to soften some language in there to bring it more in line with what the Division of Wildlife already does in regards to managing predators. So we we didn't totally castrate or eviscerate the bill, but it, um, we definitely went a long way towards that. So we are basically proclaiming, you know, sort of a small victory on that and. With our legislature, it's it's often about kind of damage control, and it's, again, it's unfortunate that our legislature um, takes it upon itself to tell Division of Wildlife Resources, staffed by very capable biologists, um, how to do their job, and they don't do a good job telling our wildlife agency how to do their job, in my opinion, so. That's yeah. something I wouldn't have been able to really jump in with those feet on at Wild Utah project. We can really, you know, get involved up the um, the hill like that. But but now I can.
0: Well, I can't wait to see what other adventures you get into as you uh, uh, transition into this newfound freedom and and ability to move in, pla- in places that you weren't before, and and also including Rewilding Leadership Council. So um, I can't wait to see what we all do together. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time for being on the show today. Uh, I know you're super busy. So thank you so much for being on Rewilding Earth.
1: And thank you, Jack. It's my pleasure. Let's do it again one day.
0: Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.